gentlemen, welcome to The Warrior Life with Justin Mergliani. This show celebrates the warrior and every person walking the planet. My warrior life was born out of a battle with ulcerative colitis and now a permanent ileostomy bag. My charity, Checkmates Charitable Association's mission is to rid the world of inflammatory bowel disease. What are you a warrior for? Hey, Chuck, I got a treat for you today. Oh, yeah, who do we got? Yeah, we got Mark Howe. <laughs> Hall of Fame defenseman slash yeah. forward, depending if WHA or NHL. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he played both sides. So uh, what, are you, uh, what are you and Mark speaking about today? Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about his time with the Flyers and how close they got to winning that Stanley Cup, especially in 85 and 87 against Edmonton. And we're also going to talk about his father, who is, in, in my opinion, one of, if not the greatest hockey player, certainly the first face on the Mount Rushmore of hockey. Yeah, Gordy Howe is obviously Mr. Hockey. Uh, I, I think there's got to be some sort of like preamble for you being a Hall of Famer and your dad is Gordy Howe, you know, the Hall of Famer. Yeah. You know, and as great as you are as a hockey player, you're still always going to pale in comparison to, you know, the Hall of Famer Gordy Howe, right? So. But, you know, at the same time, though, I think Mark really carved out an incredible niche because he did it as a defenseman. It wasn't the same position his father played. Yeah. So uh, I, I think a lot of people remember uh, his smooth skating and, and the Flyers' power play was always great in the 80s because of him and, of course, Tim Carr. Well, yeah, and the pairing that he was with Brad McCrimmon as well back in, in, the, in the Flyers' days was the highest plus-minus for any pairing in defense history for the NHL. Plus 85 for Mark Howe. Yeah. Uh, in 1985-86, he won the, uh, the uh, plus-minus award, and, and McCrimmon was right behind him, uh, plus 83. Wow. <laughs> the fact that you know that stymies me. <laughs> You know what? They would sticks in your head. Yeah. I mean, those, those numbers are ungodly. I mean, stunning. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to see Mark Howell. I mean, obviously, he's a he's a he's a wonderful human being, and uh, we've had a chance to meet him a couple times. Yeah, before, so I'm really yeah. Looking I've to had show. I've had lunch with him, and uh, what a special person. He really is a great guy. So up now, Mark Howell. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Uh, today, I have a really special treat for you. Uh, you might remember him as the slick skating, puck moving, power play specialist. Well, more than that, he was played shorthanded. He played power play, he played regular strength, and was an amazing plus 85 in 1985-86. Most people think you're crazy when you say that number, and when you look it up, it is true. He was a plus 85 in 85-86. Uh, so uh, today we have Mark Howe on the line. Mark, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Glad to be here. So, Mark, uh, tell me a little bit about your career. What what were what were the high points of your career? Uh, well, I think uh, you know, just making it to pro hockey is something in itself. But it's uh, you realize it's only the beginning. But uh, just my start was different than anybody else that's ever played the game, only because I was on the same team with uh, my father, Gordy House. So, uh, so my brother and I got a chance to play with Dad for. Uh, Dad played seven more years, incredibly, and then uh, uh, we moved on to Hartford from Houston, and then uh, uh, things changed a little bit, the dynamics of different things, and uh, I was looking to get out of there, and unfortunately, I got traded to the Philadelphia Flyers, where I spent 10 years, and then uh, spent three more years uh, playing with the Detroit Red Wings at the end of my career, And uh, uh, but yeah, for me, uh, the, two, the two best highlights for me were... Uh, and having the opportunity to play with uh, with my dad, and then uh, as an individual uh, to be a member of the Philadelphia Flyers. So it was uh, uh, we had a great group of guys and a team that uh, competed and worked really hard, and uh, didn't quite win the Stanley Cup, but we uh, uh, I think we all took a lot of pride in uh, you know what we were able to achieve. Mark, are you ever surprised how near and dear that team is from the mid '80s? It seems like people remember that team so fondly, and it did not win a Stanley Cup. But it's almost—they're almost as revered as the teams from the seventies. Uh well, I don't know. I don't know about that. Like, there's, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing like winning. So, uh, finishing second a couple times is, although uh, you know, it's it's a nice accomplishment, uh, but it doesn't, in my mind, it doesn't uh, even come uh, remotely close to uh, achieving what, uh, you know, what the winners did. So, I mean, the Broad Street Bullies, what they did uh, 
Um, ironically, the two years that I was in the WHA in Houston, we won uh, the Cup in 74 and 75 in the, in the WHA. It was the same two years that the Flyers won the Stanley Cup in the NHL. So, um, but yeah, now the, uh, um, yeah, winning, winning is what the game is all about. And, uh, uh, runners up or runners up is what they are. So, uh, uh, and, you know, I think as a team, we knew our place in history, but we were, we were a close group of guys. We worked and competed really hard and, uh, and, you know, the guys generally cared for each other. And, and that's one of the reasons we had uh, success like we did. I can tell you just a quick story that, that I know, and, and you probably would never have heard this, but uh, the sporting goods store in my neighborhood in South Philadelphia, in the summer of 1987, right after you guys went into Game 7 against Edmonton, they sold more hockey pucks than baseballs in the summer of 1987, which I find astonishing. Uh, yeah, I, like I said, uh, I know the... the... The, the town was hungry for uh, for a championship, and uh, uh, and, and I think maybe uh, everybody was kind of hoping and praying. But we, uh, uh, you know, we ran into a juggernaut, and you know, that team, I guess, was voted uh, uh, the greatest hockey team of all time. Uh, uh, you know, and whether they were, or whether they weren't, uh, they definitely were part of the conversation. Conversation, and uh, uh, and actually, Game Seven that they played us in '87, that was. Uh, uh, that's the best game I've ever seen a team play. They uh, they were on the attack. They were coming and coming at anything we had. They just snuffed us out quite easily. And we had a good start, but uh, once they got going, it was uh, it was just it was like trying to stop an avalanche. It was just an onslaught. And Ron Hextall did the best he could, but uh, yeah, they were uh, they were they were a great hockey team. I know as a fan, and I, I've talked to a lot of fans over the years with different projects that I've done, and, and, and a lot of us, especially who were kids at the time, we feel cheated. Uh, you guys had a great team, but when you went to the finals in 85, you really were battered. I mean, you had a, a very uh, injured team. Uh, Tim Kerr was playing with a bad knee and then had to leave the series. Dave Pullen cracked ribs. Uh, Brad McCrimmon, your defensive partner, separated shoulder. And then in 85, of course, the tragic loss of Pelly Lindbergh, who is your team MVP. And then in 87, uh, Tim Kerr misses the Stanley Cup Finals with the separated shoulder. Scored 58 goals that year. So we as fans kind of feel cheated. We wonder, would things have been different? Do you guys ever think that way? Uh, no, it's, uh, it is what it is. And, you know, we gave it our all. And, and both, both teams have a lot of injuries. I know, you know, uh, we were missing a few guys, but just to get just to get to that point, um, almost everybody on the ice is hurt, and uh, not to the same extent as you know playing with broken bones and different things. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it is what it is. I know in '85 when we went to the finals, uh, we were a young team, and you know I think we uh, I don't know if we maybe I think we overachieved according to a lot of people's expectations, but. Uh, Mike Keenan came in and uh, he did what I think is the hardest thing to do as a coach, and that is to get your team to believe it can win. Uh, and I think uh, we had a series of games, I don't know if it was about February or whatever, and we were, uh, we were going on the road and we were beating uh, some of the best teams in the league. And uh, by doing that, you build a, you build a confidence. And uh, that confidence carried over into the playoffs. And um, but we uh, we weren't ready. Uh, it was a learning lesson. I, I remember during the finals that year, and uh, they had uh, a couple of representatives from each team up speaking on a podium, and some watching the Oilers guys. And Wayne Gretzky was right. speaking, and he said, "Well, there's three seasons." He said, "There's the uh, there's the regular season, there's the playoffs, and then there's the finals." Well, they taught us a lesson that year. They showed us the difference between the first three rounds of the playoffs and the finals, and um, you know, then we we had an excellent year the uh, the next year, but uh, um, you know, like we uh, losing the goalie, and then uh, uh, and I don't know if emotionally or whatever, but we got beat first round, and then we came back even hungrier the next year. We got through the first round, we marched to the finals, and uh, and we got beat. So we uh, uh, like I say, I think the Oilers, uh, we didn't have a Messier, we didn't have a Gretzky, uh, you know, we didn't have a Paul Coffey. 
Um, but we had all the other stuff, and we had a lot of we had a number of guys that were really good players. I think underrated players, and um, yeah, and if, I think if you ask them, yeah, I think we gave them all they could handle. But uh, but in the end, they won, and that's history. That's what it was, and uh, not always does a better team win, but uh, I think in that series, uh, the better team won. And uh, we put an awful big scare in them, and we almost we almost brought something home to the fans of Philadelphia, but uh, we just didn't quite get it done. Yeah. Uh, you, you talked a little bit about, about Mike Keenan, and you know I, I've talked to you about this before. I'm doing a documentary in a 30 for 30 style called Keenan's Kids. Uh, and one of the questions that, that, that I've been coming back to in writing that documentary is, uh, that first year with Keenan, uh, Bobby Clark had just retired. Uh, uh, Bill Barber was out with a knee injury and then ultimately retired. Daryl Sittler was traded away early in that uh, season, right before the season opener. Keenan's style, of course, he's Iron Mike, and, and he was very uh, strict. Do you think it would have been impossible for him to commandeer the locker room the same way if he had legends like Clark and Sittler and Barber in there? Yeah, I think so. Mike, uh, everywhere Mike went, that's how he coached. That's the, uh, and actually, you know, when he, uh, when he coached the Rangers to a Stanley Cup, um, they, uh, he got rid of a bunch of young guys. They sold a bunch of the future to bring in some old guys. Uh, and he brought these old guys in and it, it, it's really hard to win with kids. Uh, so he, uh, they kept a few around some of the, the uh, you know, uh, Brian Leach was still a young player and, uh, but you know, they had Messier there and they, you know, they brought in the toe, they brought in Lauren. I mean, they brought a bunch of guys that had a lot of experience, but they were just right at the very end of the peak of their career and they were going to be headed on the downside. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, the Rangers were really hungry for a cup. And, uh, sometimes when you sell off assets, uh, uh, it doesn't work too well, but in that case, uh, Mike had guys that he knew, he trusted, he had coached before, and he knew he could push them to new limits, and uh, and that's what he did. And so, whether you're young, you're old, and Mike just pushed, and uh, that's how he had success is uh, just by pushing pe- people every single day. You talked about your father, and, and the fact he got to play with your dad in the NHL. I. I... I can't think of any other father or son combination in hockey. Is there any that you could think of? Uh, well, not that played together. There's been right. obviously fathers. And, uh, uh, no father was goofy enough, goofy enough to play that long. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, after dad, dad retired, actually played till he was 43, and he retired. And then, uh, uh, yeah, then uh, the WHA came along and, uh, the difference was in the NHL, you had to be 20 years of age to get drafted. And the WHA, they came in and they said, well, heck, if uh, kids are good enough, let's draft them at 18. So they drafted uh, uh, Marty was 19, I was 18. So we, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a loophole because uh, once you play junior hockey, and I received $10 a week, but you were considered a professional. So uh, we got I mean, WHA, they had an amateur draft and a professional draft. Well, Marty and I got drafted in the professional draft. And um, so and that was part of the inter, interleague thing they had going. And uh, people were arguing and complaining about it, but they found a loophole and a different way to get different players out. And um, so, uh, so I left after one year junior. And, um, you know, so dad missed two years. He came on. It was really difficult at first for him to, to get back rolling, even though he was probably playing 50 games a year with the alumni, but obviously it's not the same pace. And sure. Um, uh, but then he got caught up. Uh, you know, had he, if he had to wait, say, two more years till I was 20 to come out and play, missing four years, and uh, he would have been 47 years of age. I don't know if even Gordy Howe could have done that, but uh, the timing was right. Uh, uh, the physical demands uh, that uh, any sport. Uh, especially the sport of hockey puts on somebody and for to do what he did. And he was the best player in the league. He won the MVP at, at age 45. And, uh, and I've always said to me, that's the most phenomenal thing that I've seen in, in sport. That's pretty amazing. In, in anybody's Mount Rushmore of hockey, certainly Gordie Howe is in it. Uh, do you think anybody has come along that's replicated your dad? 
Uh, no, everybody's kind of different. So, I mean, you, uh, I, you hear people talk about this player, that player, and you're trying to compare players in different areas, even though Gordy, Gordy spanned it about two or three of the years. <laughs> uh, but he, he, he was such a unique player in that he was such a, just a powerful physical presence. And he had a, he had a reputation that nobody wanted to mess with. Uh, he'd find, and he was nasty. He was downright mean and dirty on the ice when he needed to be. Um, although he says that, and, and I do believe that, uh, he respected all players. Uh, but he felt that somebody was taking liberties there for the young kid and used to go by, just give him a little, little cut over the eye or knock a little tooth out just to say, hey, welcome to the league. That was, it was a different <laughs> way of saying hi. Uh, but he also had just tremendous skills and, uh, um, yeah, and I, I was fortunate. I got to play in the line with him for six years and seven years, I guess. And his um, uh, his vision and awareness and uh, was just incredible. And his endurance was just flat out phenomenal. I mean, just a um, just an absolute. His, one of his nicknames was Power, and there was nothing more fitting. But um, but I I know there's a number of times where I've talked to Bobby Orr. Uh, Bobby used to call the house after my mom passed to talk to Dad. And uh, I said it was like a mutual admiration society. So uh, Bobby said, hey, you know, take care of the old man. He's the greatest player that's ever played this game. And, and I would, the odd time, Dad and I would talk hockey, not very much. But he always thought Bobby Orr was the, the greatest player just because he said he changed the way the game was played uh, when he came along. And, and he was so great at, at his position. His two bad injuries took the toll and shortened his career. Um and then obviously the scoring of uh, of Wayne Gretzky and the um, the talent of a uh, Mario Lemieux. Um, I mean, there's and there's other guys. There's your Belvos, your Rocket Richard, but what a great goal scorer. But uh, just to be mentioned in in an argument like like that, I'm prejudiced. I believe that was the greatest player of all time. Like I said, what he did it. And he played till he was 52, and he still had 37 or 38 points when he was 52, and he played fourth line, 10, 12 minutes a game, never played the power play. So uh, in today's NHL, if you can get a fourth line guy to score uh, 38 points for you, any team in the league would sign him in a heartbeat. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's just how great a player he was. And people now are marveling at Yarmir Yager. He's what, 45 maybe, 44, 45? Yeah, 45, 46, something like that. Yeah, he's got a long way to go to catch your dad. <laughs> yeah, well, nah, yeah, age wise, I, I know he's only a, a hand for a few games behind. I don't know how many, but it's uh, under a hundred. And uh, but uh, and you can see his, his game's been sliding. But like physically, uh, I, I did an interview a couple years ago when, when Yarmer was playing down in Florida, and I said for me. He's the closest, I think, uh, thing I've seen to Gordy Howitt at uh, you know at that time and at his age, just to be that strong and uh, be that unique physically, to be able to play uh, in that sport. Uh, although I, Dad was a much better skater at his age than what Yarmir was, but Yarmir was just like physically, uh, they were both incredible human beings, and, um, and I know Dad. Uh, and like I said, his stamina was just off the charts compared to anybody else I ever met. So even even uh, as I got older, uh, wasn't playing, and you'd just be going for a walk in the neighborhood, and I'd try to get him up to a good little pace, and my heart rate would be up in the uh, low 90s uh, walking fast, and this was still in the 60s. I mean, you couldn't get it up. So uh, um, just massive, massive, huge heart. Uh, with big arteries. I know he had to have a stent put in one time. Um, so he was supposed to be in and out within an hour. And, you know, it's like three hours later, and he's still in there. And I think there was a problem. And they came out, and they just said that they didn't have a stent big enough. They said his just arteries are just way too big. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so they had to go across town. I said, but that explains what the heck happened. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, and he just had... Uh, I always said his nerve endings never went to his brain, so uh, <laughs> it's like he didn't. It's like he didn't feel pain. So I, I saw some of the stuff he endured and uh, different things, just from uh, like when I was a kid watching him play, and then as I got older, uh, I said, yeah, he's a he's a one in a billion athlete. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, uh, 
of course, he suffered the stroke. What what year was that, Mark? Uh, I don't know. His stroke was, uh, let's see, past a uh, year and a half ago. So it been two and a half plus uh, almost three years ago. So tell me a little bit about so, believe- what happened with the uh, – the stem cell transplant. There, were, there was a point in time where you thought you were going to lose him, right? Oh, yeah. No, we, he, uh, well, when he had a stroke, he, uh, he had lost the ability to, uh, to get up and walk, do anything. And, and also, he was, uh, uh, he couldn't keep food down. So every time he tried to eat, everything was coming up. So he was losing weight. He lost, uh, I think it was in, within five weeks, he had lost uh, 40 pounds. And, uh, and by the end of that time, he kind of lost the will to live. Uh, he was kind of done fighting, trying to do stuff. And, um, and also he had, he had, uh, he had some spinal stenosis at the time and his back was so bad. So he'd be in bed and boy, we'd, we'd try to get him on the bed and stop moving a 200 pound dead weight man out of bed. Sure. Uh, so, but, and every time he tried to move him, he just, he would, he was in so much pain from his back and, uh, but finally, we were able. We got him in. We found a, a doctor down in uh, Lubbock, Texas, that uh, was willing to do an epidural, and uh, actually brought Dad in. And boy, he was in such bad shape. And the doctor said, "Well, can I speak to you?" And he brings me out in the hall. He says, "What's your father doing here?" I said, "Well, I said we're trying to get him an epidural." He said, "Why? Like he's, you know, he's going to go any second." And and basically, the doctor said, "Look, if he dies on my table, he's going to sue me." And uh, I said, no, I'm not going to sue you. I said, you're, you're doing me a favor. And I said, and he said, why are you doing this? I said, well, I said, if I can at least get him into a wheelchair, get him outside, try to make him enjoy a little whatever's left of his life, I said, it's worth it to me. Uh, so the epidural worked. I was able to get him out of bed, get him in a wheelchair. And then I called my brother and these, uh, the people from the stem cell company called. And they said, look, you can get him down to... Uh, down to Mexico, Tijuana, we can, uh, uh, you know, he said, we won't, we don't think we can help. We know we can help. Wow. So, uh, Marty brought, Marty and Murray, uh, brought dad down there. And, and our hope was that, uh, it would just give him some quality of life, uh, where he could eat, smile, and just, you know, maybe enjoy a little bit more time on earth. And then, you know, then when time was up, time was up. Uh, but we were, Marty, Marty texted me, uh, I think it was two days later. He says, Oh my God. He says he, he had this procedure. They, they go in through your, uh, through your lower spine and, uh, they inject these stem cells in your body. And the hardest part, you had to lay there, I guess, for like eight hours. And that was cursing and swearing the whole time. <laughs> um, but then after, uh, after about eight hours, whatever they, uh, then you, they allowed him to sit up and. And he says, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. So, and, and now, like he was even speaking clear, which he hadn't done for a while. And uh, they said, well, here, we got to take you. I said, no, I'm fine. He, he stood up and, and mind you, it was quite wobbly. He stood up and walked on his own right to the bathroom. From, uh, this is from a guy who eight hours before couldn't walk, couldn't even stand, let alone walk. And uh, so Marty says, oh, my God, said, I can't believe. And so then I hopped on a plane. I met them. Uh, back in Lubbock, we got back within four days, and and uh, we would go every day. We'd go for a walk to help Dad try to build up his strength. And uh, by the time I got there, four days later, well, uh, you know, we were walking maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, we'd come home and be doing household chores, and he'd grab a vacuum and he'd vacuum, and, and he had almost no coordination, and his uh, his motor skills were just all but shot. And so, I mean, it was. Actually, quite phenomenal. And then he uh, um, he was able to start eating again, keeping food down. He gained his weight back within uh, like six weeks. He gained it all back, and um, and then well, it lasted. I think it was really good for I'd say twelve to fourteen months. Uh, and he needed to go back in and have another uh, have another procedure done, um, have more cells put in. And as a family, we talked about it, discussed it, and. Um, just felt dad was tired. That's my brother Murray, the doctor. He just he kind of explained. He said, "Look, it. He said his uh, his uh, his batteries are well wearing out, and uh, you know, it's just it was time. Right? It was uh, you know everybody has to go at some time, and uh, and, and dad, without saying words, just kind of he had a way of projecting certain things to you, and 
he more or less kind of let us know he was tired and he was, uh, you know, and it was getting time for him to pass. So we decided not to do any more and, and we didn't want to just keep him alive for the sake of keeping him alive. Um, you know, we, we were very fortunate. We, he lived another year and a half after a stroke. Uh, like I said, 12 to 14 months of it was really quality stuff. So where you could get in the car, do things, go enjoy things together, dinner, different things. And, um, uh, but then when it, things started getting real difficult again for him, uh, it was, it was time for him to go. So, uh, it was a bitter pill to swallow, but, uh, yeah, the, so we were, as a family, we were so thankful. And I, I still believe that stem cell therapy is something that, uh, I, I think it's a number of years away yet needs to be perfected. Um, uh, but, uh, the results that I saw with my dad after his stroke is something I never, ever thought would be possible. Do you feel a sense of pride that, that he will, at, when stem cell transplants become more common, he'll be one of the first, one of the pioneers in that part of medicine. That's pretty in, incredible. Yeah, well, they, well, the people that contact us, they uh, they had the company out in San Diego, and they uh, they were hockey fans. They uh, they <laughs> uh, they've been in hockey for years, and so I mean, they kind of contacted us out of the blue, and so and then my brother Murray researched it, and we said, well, how you know we we had nothing to lose, so like you know, on these tips. They said, look, we will help them. We'll make them better again. Um, and they did. And so, and I know uh, we saw some stuff. We talked to them, and we can't talk about it. But, yeah, they had done some things on some other notable people and kept it quiet. And actually, we weren't going to say anything as a family. Uh, we were going to keep it quiet. But what happened was uh, they were supposed to do a dinner up in Saskatoon, uh, a kinsman's dinner to, to honor dad, uh, and Marty. And so they were going to have, uh, Marty, myself, my brother, Murray, my sister, Kathy, where we were going to go up and represent dad, mm-hmm. uh, because no way could, this was after dad had had a stroke. And they said, there's just no way we can make it. And, uh, they were going to have Wayne Gretzky there and Bobby Hall and, uh, you know, which, and they ended up going. And, uh, by acts, I think Marty, uh, Marty asked if Wayne would go, and Wayne, who's always been uh, done a lot of uh, things with my mom and dad, I, and I consider him a pretty good friend, uh, he agreed to go up there. Well, then next thing you know, dad's out in Tijuana, and Marty texts the people up in Saskatoon. They said, keep this really quiet, but um, uh, you know, I, let me go back like two days prior, maybe a week prior, um, just before dad had his epidurals and stuff, people were wanting to know the progress of dad. And we just put out a press release. And, uh, we said that, you know, he, he's continuing to struggle and his, uh, you know, things aren't looking so good. And we're, you know, we, we wanted to thank everybody for sending their wishes and their prayers and all that. And then now you, you go uh, a week ahead and uh, now here's dad walking out up, walking after the stem cell thing. So Marty texted the people in Saskatoon. He goes, he said, let me just tell you, there might be a chance Gordy Howe could make it. So they released somebody in the office. They released and says, oh, my God, Gordy Howe's going to come to this dinner in Saskatoon. Right. So now people are going, well, how can he be on his deathbed? And now he's going <laughs> to Saskatoon. So, and we're sitting there. I said, oh, man. So, and, and as it turned out, it was okay. But there was never our intention to uh, to have that release. We were trying to keep it quiet. Like I said, there's a couple other notable uh, athletes uh, that we know that have had issues and, and they had it, they've had this done and, and it made a difference in their lives, like a massive difference in their lives. And, uh, uh, but in Gordy's case, the news got put out and we had really no other option than to say, well, this is how we got better. So, and for a lot of people, it was controversial and, and some people that uh, said, you know, that's not God's way and they don't believe in it. And, and uh, we just said, hey, the opportunity was presented to us. And, uh, uh, you know, if, if God didn't want you to have that, well, he would have never had that invented in the, in the first place. And right. if he had cancer, they would have never invented chemo. And, yep. uh, you know, you're not trying to toy with, uh, uh, with God or Mother Nature. But, uh, you know, and, and it's also if you're sitting there, you're watching a loved one. And, and there's millions and millions of people around this globe that they watch millions of their loved ones with pain and suffering and um you know if they could find anything to make that go away yeah they do it in a heartbeat and, and that's what we did and, and 
and we went in with a blind eye and we were absolutely astonished and and uh and we were all so thankful and glad that we did do it too and you got all that extra time with him too which is really special i'm sure oh yeah sure i like i mean if anybody could control their fate which obviously nobody can but he said okay i'm, I'm gonna pass and uh I'm, i got a year and a half to live well uh, like, I mean, when Dad was down in Lubbock, I I, I would scout uh, like 19 games in 20 days, and I would, uh, or yeah, it'd be like 19 and 22 days and catch a couple other games. And I'd go to, out to Lubbock, and I'd spend five, six days. And, uh, you know, I'm doing my work, and I'd go for five, six days. And when I left, Marty would show up for five or six days. And then he would leave, my brother Murray would show up, and then my sister, we'd leave her alone for a week with Dad, and then we'd do the whole cycle again. So, and then, uh, you know, and then as time was winding down and, uh, and a little while before he passed, and then we had the whole family come in. We had a really long three, four day weekend and everybody got time with dad and you got a chance to say goodbye. Huh? Like, I mean, you just, you don't, you're not provided that opportunity very often. So, uh, we knew what was happening. And, um, uh, so yeah, like I said, uh, that's the best thing about it. When you lose somebody suddenly, it's it's such a difficult thing. And in, in the six years prior to that, after my mom passed, we uh, dad was really lonely. And even though I had kept on the caregivers at his home in Detroit uh, for about four to four to five months after, dad was just lonely at night when they would go. And I was in there one trip, and I said, well, I'm not doing this anymore. So I. I uh, I grabbed Dad and I put him in a car and I took brought him back to New Jersey with me and uh, from that point on till the day he passed he only spent one night alone uh, and I and my younger son had a date he was at a movie <laughs> and so my dad was calling me I called my son I kind of gave him gave him a little hack and I said your grandfather is never going to spend another night alone as long as he lives and and he didn't and that's so so yeah and it was hard after mom passed he was so lonely and. Uh, you know, it was, it was, a, uh, my mother was his everything. And, yeah. but at least now he, when he woke up in the morning, there's a familiar face there. And, and so when it was one of his, one of his children were there every day that he woke up and, uh, and we interacted, did things. And, uh, then every face where he saw before he went to bed, it was somebody from the, one of his kids. So, um, and it's a commitment by everybody. And, and as uh, as time went on, he uh, you know, we just the last couple of years he got to the stage where we couldn't couldn't move him around anymore because he was so unfamiliar and being forgetful with different things. And, uh, so then that's why we had him in Lubbock. And then after his stroke, and uh, we just felt we decided as a family the best place for him to be was with uh, my brother Murray and his, his wife Colleen. And, uh, and you know we had the caregivers up there too, but uh, the the two of them did just such a wonderful job uh, with that. And, and he couldn't have been in a better situation. And we, we decided of the four households, that was the place to be. And, uh, uh, and they, they had a better opportunity to do and, and the temperament of everybody involved was, uh, it was the best situation for dad. And it was actually a good situation. So, uh, so for that, we were, uh, as a family, we were lucky, but it's, it's a big commitment, but uh, one that, you know, I think we all gladly did. Um, has hockey changed for you at all? I mean, he was such a big part of your life and, and a big part of your hockey life. Did hockey change at all for you when your dad passed? Uh, no, I, no, because in our family, I mean, yeah, we, I played hockey. Dad played. Marty was 12 years. I was 22. Dad was 32. It's easy numbers to remember. Yeah. Uh, um, but no, like our life, although we played hockey, uh, uh, we all made it to the highest level that you could reach uh, in the world, and uh, but our life was all about family and all about interacting and doing different things. And uh, yeah, some of it happened to be on the ice, and the stories that Marty and I tell are all the all the things where Dad hurt somebody or did this or that. But uh, just all the fishing trips we did. I mean, I I, I golfed. I don't know, had to had to golf 500 rounds of golf with my dad as a kid growing up, and. Uh, the fishing, the water skiing, our summer home, like all the things we did. That's what we always talk about, and that's what you remember. And um, I don't know. I I think it was about a week after Dad passed. Marty sent me a picture. He found a picture of Mom and Dad somewhere, um, and, I, and I just loved it. It was taken maybe 25, 30 years ago, and um, 
So I just, and it's my screensaver. So I see them every day. I'll, every day I open up my computer, and I don't know if anybody doesn't look at the computer every day. So. Yeah, right. Uh, every day, yeah, before I sign in, big old picture mom and dad pops up, and uh, uh, yeah, so you, you never forget. So, Mark, did that see? Did your dad see you play a lot at the Spectrum? Did he come down for those games? No, not a lot. He came down uh, when he could, and, and I'm not sure if he came down to see me or he came down to spend time with my kids. You know, his grandkids. So. Sure. Uh, I know uh, my kids uh, went to Morristown Friends School, and they always had grandparent day. Both my parents, mom and dad, came down every grandparent day. Um, and, uh, you know, for holidays, birthdays, different things. And I was playing, so I couldn't get away. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, they were here for every single one of them. And then, and then they could say the same for my brother and sister. They, I mean, they had their kids, too. So and mom and dad, they... And they just flew around the country on top of all the other personal parents' business that had gone. So they, it seemed like they were traveling more than anybody could ever travel. But um, they, uh, the most important commitment in their lives was their families, and uh, that's what they instilled in us. And uh, and they didn't just talk it; they lived it. They showed it. So in uh, in my kids to this day, they just uh, uh, they remember uh, and. You know, they let you know how important it was that uh, to have their grandparents there. So, uh, yeah. So I think, uh, uh, I think, yeah. If they could work it out where we were playing a home game, then they could visit all the grandkids. Yeah, I think Dad did it, but uh, I think a lot of it had to do with uh, with coming and spending time with the grandkids. Mark, I know I'm keeping you a little longer than we uh, spoke about. Can I ask you just a couple more questions? Sure. Uh, so we talked a lot about your dad, but you know, your mother was also very influential in the NHL and changing, you know, the good old boys network. So, uh, tell me a little bit about your mom in hockey. Uh, well, I, I think anybody that, uh, it's, uh, hockey moms are more important than hockey dads, I think in a lot of cases. <laughs> so especially I sometimes, um, you know, the, the husband, the father, they, you know, they have jobs where they travel. And yeah, I miss, I think it's more so, uh, nowadays where both couples are maybe, uh, more working parents than what it was years ago. And, um, so I'm not slighting anybody, but mom was always the one at home taking care of things. And, and uh, she was instrumental in, uh, Marty and I, uh, developing, uh, as hockey players. She's the one that drove us to the rink. We used to, we played on these travel teams and, you know, we were playing a hundred games a year in practice three days a week. Wow. So, uh, thank God Marty and I played on the same teams together. And, um, so, <laughs> oh, but, uh, she, uh, you know, we played, uh, played an outdoor rink for, I think two years, one or two years in Detroit. There was no indoor rink. So they, uh, I think year two, what they did, they, uh, they were, they mortgaged their home. They got some other investors, and they built a rink uh, on the far side of Detroit. It's called Gordy Howe Hockey Land. And uh, as it was being built, there was an old factory. Uh, one of the automotive companies, I don't know, even GM or something, where they uh, they had an old factory not being used. And uh, they took the hockey rink, and they, they put the rink up, and it was still, uh, still natural ice. So, I mean, there was no Freon, no, no pipes underneath. And... Uh, just wait till it got cold, put ice in there. But at least we didn't have to shovel the snow when it was when uh, when it was snowing outside. And so that's we played there for a year, and then we got into play at the Gordie Hockey Land. And then within a year or two, uh, there was a couple more rinks built, more teams, more things. So my mom was instrumental of you know, the development of uh, hockey in the, in, the, in the city of Detroit, which was uh, and at the time I think there was Detroit. Uh, there was Michigan, there was Minnesota, and Massachusetts. Uh, those were the big three uh, where hockey was being developed in the States. And and then by the time uh, Marty and I hit 13, 14, um, there was nowhere else to go. We kind of almost reached the pinnacle of what we could do as players developing in Detroit. Uh, so she formed the ju- first junior B team. Uh, called the Olympia Agencies, which was it was sponsored by the insurance company that was all as part of the uh, the Red Wing um, division. And then the next year, she got us into a league. As we had to be an American team, and it was an all Canadian league in Southern Ontario, and uh, we were able to play in that league for for two years. 
So, and then Marty went to Toronto. I played on the Olympic team. Then the next year I went to Toronto when I was 17. Um, but that was, that was all on my mom. It was nobody else. And, and then, uh, mom became our agent when we, we turned pro and she got us her contracts in Houston. And, and, uh, I'll put it this way, Gordy Howe, the greatest player of all time, uh, the last, last year he played and he, he made a hundred thousand wow. dollars, uh, in 1971. And two years later, I'm signing a contract as an 18 year old. I've never played a game. And I got, uh, I got signed for $125,000 a year. So, uh, I know the bargaining, uh, chips were a little bit different. And, uh, at least you had players, at least now you have one other option between the NHL and the WHA, but, yeah, she got uh, she got me twenty five twenty five percent more than my dad ever made, and uh, he played twenty five years, held all those records, and I never played a game. So uh, yeah, she did a wonderful job for us as agent as well. And the one thing you never had to worry about, she was never going to take advantage of you or skip you, and she always had your back. And you know, my mom always, I'm, both my parents, they uh, what I appreciated most is they let us grow up, be ourselves, and we were told a lot we we were allowed to be ourselves and when you got out of line yeah you uh there was consequences to to being out of line and you learn lessons yeah uh they're life lessons and but i loved that I, I was never told what to do all the time I, and even on the ice my dad never told me what to do uh so he just let us go out and be ourselves and play and uh, and, but you know, everybody goes, goes through uh, tough times or, uh, or times when you need your parents and your support and, um, the door was always open. So even when you did wrong and, uh, things, but they, they'd sit down and, and, uh, they'd re- reason with you. And as long as you weren't too, too stupid where you deserved a little, <laughs> little whack on the fanny, then, uh, yeah. So like I, I, you know, we were. As as the four how kids, I mean, we were we were very very fortunate. We had uh, two loving parents who uh, um, uh, they always showed that the most important thing in their lives were their children. And more finally, the uh, the, the foundation uh, that bear your parents' name. Tell me a little bit about that and what you do and and how people maybe could get involved or what kind of events you have. Uh, yeah, well, we don't really have any events. We, I know my mom; she created the How Foundation. Uh, years ago, oh god, I think it was back in 1997, I believe, something like that. Okay. Uh, and her goal was to to help benefit uh, children, um, you know, through sport, through business, the business of sport, that that type of thing. And um, and what we've done is, uh, and, and our whole focus since uh, uh, mom and dad has passed has been to preserve uh, much of what. Uh, mom and dad collected over the years and uh, to continue to help raise money uh, through, you know, leasing out some of dad's things or whatever. We, we have no intention of selling uh, some of their prime stuff and anything that we would sell, um, all the benefit, all the money uh, that raised would go to the Howe Foundation. And, uh, you know, our long-term goal is to, it, my mom had visions of museums and this and that and everything else. And, um, yeah, all these different things and in her lifetime, unfortunately, she was never able to do that. So, uh, our goal is, and it's nice. We have some other people coming in trying to help out and it's a long process. So I know it's been a year and a half since dad passed, but, um, in, in the process, we're, we're trying to do it right. Uh, and I, we got some people up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where dad was born, where people want to use a museum. We're doing some stuff with the hockey hall of fame up in toronto um and different thing now my my youngest son travis uh he has a uh he has a a company and uh part of what they do and they they have a uh division there company it's called sport for life and uh that's a charitable thing and and, uh a lot of times in hockey and they do a lot of travel tournaments and different things and a lot and as everybody knows in hockey, uh, it's uh, it's a difficult thing to pay for some of these things, and not all gifted athletes are born with a lot of money. So um, uh, every year we've donated. Uh, uh, it's like there's been small, like five, six thousand dollars right now to uh, to try to help out some of those kids, and you know, hopefully someday one of those kids will become a, a hockey player. And, and also, what we're doing is for uh, for girls, um, you know, whether it be in hockey or different sports. 
but also for going to school to become uh, like a sports agent, business type of person. So, uh, and we're trying to encompass everything. Uh, we're work, working with some people that um, anybody knows anything about youth hockey. There's a, one of the greatest tournaments of all time. It's been around forever. It's a Quebec TV tournament. Uh, but of course, it's all boys. So we're uh, somebody came up with the concept of trying to have an all girls tournament. Wow. So uh, we're in the process of, uh, and, but it takes a long time, a lot of people and commitment from different things. And, and you have to have sponsors. And uh, so we've got people working and we're, we're trying to put together. We'd love, I, I think it'd be wonderful to, to have a, a Colleen Howe uh, hockey tournament for, uh, uh, you know, for elite girls. And, and it'd, be a, it'd be a nice uh, stepping stone towards uh, like the girls Olympic teams and different things. So, so and there's some and there's a few other things. There's a gentleman in Chicago that uh, he's he was reading some stuff and uh, and, and you know he's a uh, well-to-do gentleman and he uh, you know he he had met my parents years ago and so what he's doing right now he's uh, uh, through his finances and his in, in my mother's name he's uh, I think he's he's donating about $30,000 in scholarships to, uh, to young women for sports and for business and different things. So, uh, and he wants to build that up to, uh, to at least double that number in a couple more years. And, uh, so, so there's a lot of things that are, are going, a lot of things in the works. And, uh, so it's, uh, it's a fun project. And, and yeah. uh, it, it was one of those things where as the four children, we could easily take in the stuff and sold it off and kept the money even, uh, mom, dad. Well, it's not in us to do that, but mom, dad would have shot us anyway. <laughs> and we, we, we know how special uh, it is to be the the sons and, and daughter of Colleen and Gordy House. So, uh, um, and you know, we we would like to, and we know how revered dad was, uh, and it would be an unjust thing if uh, you know a, a collection of different things in the history. Uh, is not kept together so that uh, people always have the, always have the opportunity to uh, to learn and read and see uh, who and what Gordy and Colleen Howe were. So uh, and that's that's the main focus of the uh, the Howe Foundation and uh, you know of the Howe, the Howe children. I think it's great that you're you're uh, really protecting their legacy. That's that's amazing. Yeah, well, that's it's the most. And like I said, we I like I said, I'm prejudiced, but yeah, I, we know how special it is. And uh, you know, like and when I have people that are you know, when I have Bob Yor and Wayne Gretzky and Marilyn Mew, they do interviews and they say the greatest hockey player of all time is Gordy Howe. Well, uh, that's a legacy that you just uh, uh, it's more than worth protecting. And uh, and anybody who met Dad and Mom, they know how special they were. And like, and I always said they were better people. Then they were, uh, dad was a better person. He was an athlete, better than a hockey player. And he was wasn't too bad at it. So, yeah, really. uh, and that's, and that's part of what we want to do. And that's part of why mom created the Howe foundation years ago. And, uh, so, so it actually is very important for, and it's nice because we've had a lot of other people come in train business people far, uh, far more suit than I am. And, um, they've come in and, uh, they've been offering their help and giving a lot of time and, uh, they've been very generous to us, and uh, but they they believe in and they have the same goals that we do. So uh, uh, it's a collective thing, and uh, you know we're we're hoping that uh, these things will continue uh, and come to fruition, and you know hopefully within a year or two, and continue on for uh, for a lifetime. Mark, I know I kept you a lot longer than I told you, so I appreciate your time. I got one <laughs> more one more quick thing to ask you um, from from talking to you, from reading your book, from getting to know you a little bit. It seems like the Howe family does have spirituality to them. Do you think someday you'll skate with your father again? Uh, I don't know. I like, hey, have I been there? One thing about it, like, uh, there's churchgoers and there's non-church goers. Like, we're, uh, we're not church. My brother Murray's very, uh, very religious. Uh, goes to church religiously. Marty, uh, it's, it's like me and my son. We go, if we're all in the church at the same time for a wedding or something, we're waiting for lightning bolts to hit. But uh. Uh, I don't know. I, I just, I believe in, I was taught by my parents and my spiritual belief is that, uh, you, you just, my job is to, to be kind and courteous. I like people. People are, uh, uh, good people. I'm not above anybody. And, uh, uh, I, I try to live what people have to go to church to try to learn. So that, uh, that I don't, 
that's that was instilled to me by my parents and uh i don't need to be in the house of worship to to know that but yeah i'm uh, so that that's my spirituality right there. So uh, just try to uh, uh, just try to be the best human being that I can be every day, and that's what life's about for me. Yeah, it's like the saying. Some people say, uh, "Many go church, many go, few understand," and that's that really. Just because you're in the pews every week doesn't mean that you really understand. So. Yeah, that's true. So like I said, I um, yeah, that's why you learn something every day of your life. And, uh, and I always said, my, I always thought my father was uh, the best, nicest person I, that I ever met. And, uh, you know, ever since he passed, the one thing I got out of that more than anything is uh, uh, I just want to be a better person every day the rest of my life. So, and that's what makes me proud and that's what makes him proud. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for being a part of this show. Thank you for doing this with us today. Well, we enjoyed it. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Mark Howe, Flyer Hall of Famer and also NHL Hall of Famer. How much fun is it to talk to uh, Mark? He can talk uh, about a variety of topics. Yeah. And it's never a conversation. It just flows. It just does. Yeah, yeah. it really does. And you know what's funny? I got, I've got i had a chance to skate with him. And uh, even now, that man is as fluid as it gets. It's unbelievable. Yeah, well, he's a Hall of Famer as well. Hockey's in his blood, right? So. Yeah, yeah. From birth. <laughs> yeah, and they say that like when you get older that you lose the speed, but you never lose the hands. The hands are always with those guys as well, so they can really dangle with the puck, and their hockey sense is really fun. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's always a great experience to get off the ice and talk about a variety of issues about non-hockey related. Yeah. Uh, and, and Mark Howe can really, really, you know, fuel the tanks that way with a variety of topics. He can he can see it's it's amazing how much he and his family love Gordy. I yeah. mean they they really thought of him as a hero and, and uh, I'm sure that's hard to have a relationship with somebody who's not home a lot because he was traveling with hockey yeah. and stuff like that. So it's amazing that Gordy uh, really left that much of an impression on his own kids. That's a that's a bigger legacy to me than his hockey stuff. Yeah, and I think the Howe family as well with the foundation has done a really good job of keeping that alive. Um, and obviously they were a team as a, as a family as well. Yeah. You can't forget Colleen. I mean, yeah. she, uh, instrumental. Absolutely. She changed sports. I think for a lot of women, not just in hockey, but maybe in even other sports, even for agents. Cause she, you know, she was the agent. So yeah, <laughs> like, it's amazing. Uh, matriarch of the family, very powerful. And, uh, I'm really glad that you got Mark on board. Uh, really long show. Yeah. Yeah. But it, you know what? It didn't seem that long. I looked up at the clock and I th- said, wow, we're almost at an hour here. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Mark, uh, he's got a lot of great stories, and he's a great person. Well, I just love a guy who give you that much time. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. I almost felt guilty. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to go down to, uh, we'll include the links for the Howe Foundations and uh, where you can find Mark Howe. And uh, I really enjoyed the show. Yeah, I did too, Chuck. All right, tune in next time, guys. We'll talk to you later. Chuck's World of Infinite Mojo and the Warrior Life were produced by Faders Unstunned Studios for Listen Up Talk Radio. If you have a comment, reach out, feedback at radiothatdoesnsuck.com or call us on our contact line, 1-866-269-6155.